God, may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, please be seated. It's nice to say that to actual people and see you sit when I direct you to. So it's great that uh, people are, are coming back. We're seeing more and more people on Sundays, uh, which is, just warms my heart. Um, and today is, today is the second of three Sundays, and we are unpacking our plans, or the schematic, for the bark of St. Bartholomew. Remember the, uh, this is a sermon series uh, for a few weeks on our mission, our vision for St. Bartholomew's, and uh, a bark is a ship with three masts. And so if, as we said on St. B's Sunday, the church's deepest nature is expressed in her threefold responsibility, then the sails that hang from the masts of our ship are three things God is calling us as St. Bartholomew's to work very hard at as a church in the pandemic and uh, beyond in the months that come. And so each, each mast that supports each of the sails, that's Christian formation, what holds it up. And then the hull is what keeps everything safe inside of the ship. That's our community. That's St. Bartholomew's, our family. So that's our ship, three sails, three homilies, and each one is kind of a bird's eye flyover, so we can cover a lot of ground uh, before hopefully we'll drill down deeper in the months and, and weeks and months to come uh, in classes and small groups and other ways. So last week we looked at the first sale, uh, which was evangelism. Next week, the third sale, which is worship, and today is our second sale, which is serving the poor. And if you want a, the Greek word associated with it, it is diakonia. It's the, where we get our word deacon. Um, <clears throat> Jesus said, I am among you as diakonia. I'm among you as one who serves. And it can mean um, spiritual service. It can mean what, what a deacon, Father Charlie today is the deacon of the Mass. It can mean what his service is. But it can also mean something very practical. It can mean... Uh, giving basic supplies like food or shelter or uh, even finances to those who are in need. So my premise is St. B's should be about diakonia, be about serving the poor. And so I want to jump right in and look at four things. First, nomenclature. Secondly, necessity. Third, the net. And then finally, need. Nomenclature, necessity, net, and need. All ends. And uh, so nomenclature just means name. It's the name of the sale. Necessity is why, are, why is serving the poor necessary? And then why do we have to be about it? The net is, uh, that was my hardest. That was the biggest reach to come up with the word net. But what I mean is the interconnected kind of web of practices that we are calling serving the poor. And then finally, our need. What do we need if we're going to do this work? So, number one, nomenclature. And the first two points of the sermon are basically, I'm, I'm trying to anticipate objections. 
And one objection might be the way that I have styled the sale, serving the poor. Why not low income? Why not uh, those experiencing poverty? Why use the word poor? Well, Gawain Kripke is, what a, that's a great name, Gawain Kripke. Gawain Kripke uh, works at um, Oxfam. Oxfam, the, the global uh, uh, institution, organization that was uh, created to fight poverty. And the Ox in Oxfam, as Sally knows, stands for Oxford. It is the Oxford um, Committee for Famine Relief, founded in 1942 in Oxford, England. But our friend Gawain, Gawain is from America. And so when he went and he took his job, started working for this organization that has deep British roots, something sounded off to him. He noticed that the word poor was all over their documents at Oxfam. So on their internal strategy memos, on their public communications, it just kept saying poor over and over. And uh, it just, it sounded weird to him. So he said, to my American ears, this sounded terrible. The word sounds archaic, even medieval, rigidly classist and fatalistic. The poor often denotes a great undifferentiated mass. It conveys the idea that poverty is immovable like a historical legacy that we must endure but never overcome. And saying poor countries just sounds patronizing. So in U.S. speak, that he was familiar with, you say low-income people. You say developing countries. Now, doesn't that seem more polite and respectful? Being low-income or developing sounds like it, it's much more transitory, like a temporary inconvenience. And everything will get right back on track soon enough. But then he kept thinking about it. He thought about it some more. And finally he said this. He said, poverty is terrible. And the point of working at Oxfam, the reason he took the job was to do something about it. To gather support to challenge the injustices that cause poverty. So if the word poor sounds screechy, so be it. We should be shouting about it daily, poor. More than 1.2 billion people are extremely poor, and it's awful. Saying poor is a bit jarring. It may sound like laying on a guilt trip, but did Jesus ever say anything about low-income people or developing countries? No, Jesus said, go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. So use poor, even though I know it sounds rough, it's supposed to. So we use the word, not just because it shows up in the Bible over 300 times, but precisely because it stresses, it throws into relief the starkness of the problem. That there are over a billion people, all of them made in God's image, that are struggling under back-breaking, abject poverty. And God has indexed our faith to serving them. He has said, what is it? The heart of following me, the heart of following the God of the Bible is serving God's poor. 
So that's point two, necessity. We talked about nomenclature. Necessity, why is serving the poor at the heart of what it means to follow God? So if the first objection, possible objection, was around the word poor, the second objection could be around a different word, the word justice. Because God doesn't just say that it is necessary for the church to serve the poor. He says it is unjust for us not to. And the short answer to why it's unjust, why this is necessary, is solidarity. Solidarity. So I'm going to show you what, what I mean by looking at two famous passages from the Bible. Um, just remember that the, the poor show up in the Bible hundreds of times. And we'll just take a moment to look at two. One from the Old Testament, one from the New. So the first from the Old Testament is the famous passage in Isaiah 58. If I read it, it would sound familiar to you. It begins by listing all of the ways that Israel is religious. Day after day they seek me, it says. They, they delight to know my ways. They draw near to God. They fast. And yet in the first verse of Isaiah chapter 58, God tells Isaiah, announce to my people not all the things that they're doing well, announce to my people their rebellion. Now how can that be? How can uh, a, a group of people that are being religious, going to church, saying their prayers, seeking after God, learning the commandments, how can they be in rebellion against God? Well, God says, I don't want your religion. It turns my stomach. You want to know what kind of fast I want? To unloose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see them naked to cover them? And get this, not to hide yourself from your own kin. That last little phrase is what I mean, it's what I'm getting at. That when we share our bread with the hungry, we bring the homeless poor into our house, we clothe the naked and we break the bonds of injustice. We're not just meeting the needs of some stranger on the street. They are us. We are in solidarity with the poor. And you, So you can say that's, that's the Old Testament. That's Israel. What's that got to do with me? Well, look at Matthew 25. When they asked, when, Lord, did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and we did not take care of you? And then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Not only are we in solidarity with the poor, but God, God himself is in solidarity with the poor. Whatever we do to them, that's what we do to God. And that's the devotion that God wants from us. That's why serving the poor, justice for the poor, is necessary. Number three. So we talked about nomenclature, uh, necessity. This is the net, and that's the, this kind of interconnected web of practices that, uh, that, we, that serving the poor might entail. So what, what would that look like? And the short answer to the question about what will serving the poor look like at St. Bartholomew's is, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know what it's going to look like. Um, 
It, it all depends. Micah 6 uh, is a really famous part of the Bible, and he says, this is what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. I don't know what justice and mercy looks like coming from us to the world around us, but I can tell you that I mean, we are already doing things. That we give somewhere around 18 cents of every dollar in this church goes to some ministry outside of ourselves, to, to blessing and for the flourishing of people that are outside of our family. And uh, we have a wonderful group of volunteers on the mission and outreach team who do the heavy lifting of praying and uh, determining where our budget, where our missions budget goes, where do we invest, where do we give. I'm happy to report as well that uh, Nancy Kaysen has uh, agreed to come on staff as a volunteer, as the assistant to the rector for Justice and Mercy Ministries to help us ask the question, what would it look like? What would it look like if justice and mercy really were core values of St. Bartholomew's? So, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I can give you, let me give you two examples of what it might look like. Uh, first, there is justice and mercy at the micro level, the micro level. So that means that we, we work as hard as we can to meet the felt needs of individuals. So uh, when we open our doors, uh, Room in the Inn, I, I think, is returning in the fall. So when we open our doors and we welcome guests in so folks have a place to sleep, that's justice and mercy at a micro level. Or when we support the Mbithis and New Life Restoration Ministry, and they're feeding and uh, educating children in Kenya. Or we uh, do a food drive for St. Luke's, or we make a meal and go and serve it at the Family Reconciliation House where uh, Father Charlie used to work, where people come from all over the Southeast and they spend the night in this house uh, so that they can wake up early in the morning and go visit a family member that's in prison. That's justice and mercy. That's what it might look like when it's focused on individual needs on, at the micro level. But there's also justice at the macro level. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to say this three times using three different voices. Not like made-up voices, but three different people. So first... Desmond Tutu, uh, there's a famous line where he says, there comes a point where we need to just stop pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. And then Dietrich Bonhoeffer said something just very similar. He said, we are not simply to bandage the wounds of the victims beneath the wheel of injustice, we are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. And if Desmond and Dietrich don't do it for you, then let's go back to Isaiah. Isaiah, in chapter 1, the very beginning, he says, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, and then he says, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Now, what do those three voices have in common? They all say that we can work at justice at a micro level. But that God's also calling us to think about serving the poor at a macro level. So do we have in our church influence that we can bring to bear 
on issues that are at a systemic level that confront the poor. Something, uh, Isaiah says, take up their cause, advocate for them, uh, give a voice to those who can't get a hearing. How can we work for affordable housing? How can we work for better schools? How can we work for wage equity? Or, or how can we even protect the environment, knowing that the way that we uh, behave here in America affects the poor all over the world, and even the earth itself. Some theologians say that the earth itself can be thought of as poor, something that we need to, to serve and care for. So you, do you see that justice and mercy means that we look not just for ways to bind up the broken that are among us, but we also address any system that is breaking them in the first place. And I don't know what that will look like for us. We'll find out as we live into that ourselves. But point number four, the last one, we have nomenclature, necessity, the net, and then finally, need. What do we need if we're going to do this work? So I want to be clear. I am not advocating. The, the church is not a social service provider. That's not what the church is. But what the church is, is a family of people, a group, a collective of individuals who have tasted grace. And once you've really tasted grace, then you cannot, you can't not care for the needs of the people around you. It is grace. Grace is what we need to do our work. One reason that Renee and I wanted to be a part of this place uh, three years ago when we came here is because when we looked at you from outside, we saw a group of people that were just hooked on grace. And 2 Corinthians 8 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. These, the bricks in this nave are soaked with grace with the preaching of the gospel that the king of the universe was born in a feed trough. Jesus said, uh, foxes have holes, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus became poor so that you could become rich. That is grace. And then to serve those who cannot repay, just like we read today, in today's gospel, to serve those who cannot repay, that is the family business. That's what we do for a living. Having tasted it, now we pay it forward. Uh, one last point. It, it is short-er. It, it is short-ish, okay? The sales on our bark, they, they are not wholly unrelated. Uh, the same wind that fills one fills them all. And so I want to just show you one way that the first two sails are connected. Not physically, but one way that they are, they're related to each other. And it, it works like this. When we are evangelized, and none of us is here except for the fact that we have heard the good news. When we hear the good news of the gospel, that God laid aside the riches so that we could become rich. When we hear the gospel, that drives us out to do justice in return. And 
the justice that we do becomes the foundation of the gospel that we preach to others. It is the, the authenticating factor. When we go all out to serve people, to love and to do justice for the poor, to love the poor, that demonstrates the, the veracity, the truthfulness of the gospel that we preach. Leslie Newbegin, you're going to get tired of me saying his name, but he has uh, just had a profound influence on my life, on how I think about the church and her mission in the world, and at the very end of the gospel in a pluralist society, and he's summing up all of his points, he says this, how is it possible, he asks, how is it possible that the gospel should be credible? That people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross. I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. You are the hermeneutic. The, the in, you're the Rosetta Stone the interpretive key that the poor need to see in order to interpret the love letter that God has written to them in the blood of His Son. Tim Keller says it better than me in Generous Justice. When a city perceives a church is existing strictly and only for itself and its own members, the preaching of that church will never resonate with outsiders. But if neighbors see church members loving their city through astonishing sacrificial deeds of compassion, they will be much more open to the church's message. Now, deeds of mercy and justice should be done out of love, not simply as a means to the end of evangelism. And yet, there is no better way for Christians to lay a foundation for evangelism than by doing justice. Our vision is to be a community of disciples following Jesus out into the world and doing what he did, which is loving those of us, and we are all poor. So rest in the grace of the Lord who for your sakes, though he was rich, became poor, and taste the bread from heaven which comes down upon this altar, and then go out into the world, preach the gospel, and love the poor. It's our second sale, and today that's for your invitation. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.